1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. And uh, as you're turning there, if you would join me in uh, standing for the reading of God's Word tonight. And uh, we're going through a series um, called Marks of a Healthy Church. Tonight we come to the Church of Thessalonica. And uh, we'll pick it up here in verse number 1. The Bible says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, uh, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they, speak, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath of to come, and could we pray one more time together this evening? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this passage of scripture. Thank you for this church that uh, you highlighted here in your word. And Lord, help us to learn lessons from this church as we endeavor to be a church that brings you honor and glory, as we endeavor to have marks of a healthy church as well here in 2019 in, in Moore, Oklahoma. Lord, help us to be obedient to you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated once again. (coughs) I apologize for my voice today, um, and tonight I'm not sure how well it'll do, so uh, bear with me if you would on that. Um, So we're continuing our series called Marks of a Healthy Church with a message tonight on the church at Thessalonica. Now, as we examine the qualities of this church, we're going to see that this was in many ways an example church for the surrounding areas. This was a church that made a significant impact in the area. Other, other churches in the area would look at this church there at Thessalonica as, as kind of the, the example church. And, uh, and it, was, it was a good church. As a side note, um, this is just kind of not really related to the message tonight. This is just free information but uh, the books of First and Second Thessalonians uh, each have a major emphasis on eschatology, which, if you know what eschatology means, it's the doctrine of last times. It's the doctrine of uh, what's going to happen in the future. And uh, particularly, they focus on the truth that Jesus is coming again. And aren't you glad that he is? First uh, Thessalonians chapter number four gives us the the real uh, outline of the, uh, the rapture on how that rapture of the church is going to take place. And in light of that, how are we supposed to live? And uh, it's a good book, of the, a good book in the Bible. 
But uh, before we get into the qualities of the church, I, I, I think it would be helpful for us if we look back and learned how this church really began, how it, how it was started. And so if you would, uh, kind of put a marker there in 1 Thessalonians. We'll be back here in a moment. But let's flip over to uh, Acts chapter number 17. And this is where we see the church at uh, Thessalonica started. And uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 1 says, Now when they had passed through... Um, Amphipolis, I don't, I'm not saying that right, Amphipolis, Polis, something like that, and uh, this, other, this other town, they came to Thessalonica, I know how to say that one, there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul, as his manner was, went into them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, so three Sabbath days means that he was there for how long? Three weeks. Three to four weeks, right, because it could have been a little before and then, and then a little after the three Sabbath days. Um, it says, uh, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, that is, and that is Jesus, whom I preach unto you as Christ. In verse 4, and this kind of happens throughout the book of Acts as the gospel gets preached, and this is how it goes wherever the gospel is preached. And some of them believed. Not everybody will believe, but some of them will. Uh, and some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief woman, not a few. But the Jews which believe not, so there's, there's always some, right, that will believe and there are some that won't believe. And, uh, and there's challenges uh, with those who don't usually. And, and uh, definitely such was the case here in Thessalonica. But the Jews which believe not move with envy took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. And that's quite a compliment, although I don't know that they meant it as a compliment, but that was... Uh, a compliment in our, in our, from our perspective. It says, Whom Jason hath received, and all these do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. When they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Well, verse 10, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea who coming in thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. So the brethren said, Hey, Paul, Silas, we like having you guys here, but it ain't safe for you to stay around. Um, things are getting a little restless here. It's a little turbulent. You may want to bounce over to Berea. And so they did. And then verse 11 says, uh, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks and of men, not a few. And then uh, let's keep reading here for a couple more verses. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. So they were kind of hearing that, okay, well, it'd be kind of like, I'm not exactly sure, I didn't study this out, how close Berea was to Thessalonica, but they were neighboring cities. So let's say it would be like, you know, uh, here and more, they come to more, right? And, and everything's, some people are getting saved, but then the rest of the town doesn't really like what they're preaching. So they, 
the brethren send them away, the church members send him away, and he goes to Mustang, let's say. And, uh, and so he goes to Mustang, and then they start, people and more start hearing about what's going on in Mustang, and so they said, well, let's go get him. It's not that far. Let's go get him. So that's what they did uh, in verse 13. And then verse 14, then they immediately, then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And uh, so there was, this is how that church came about there in Thessalonica. So Paul and Paul, Silas and Timothy were there for three, four weeks, uh, just preaching and, and doing what they always did. But a good chunk of them believed and, and a good chunk didn't. And uh, I'll, let me read my notes here because it explains it a little bit better than what I'm going to just do off the cuff here. Um, it says the context of this chapter is it's during Paul's second missionary journey. Although some Jews believe the majority of the Christians were Gentiles, and these were uh, mostly slaves and members of the working class. Paul's brief but amazingly fruitful ministry at Thessalonica was abruptly terminated by unbelieving Jews who incited a riot, obliging Paul to move on. So Paul and his companions then journeyed on to Berea. Well, driven out of Berea by persecution, Paul went on to Athens, leaving Timothy and Silas behind. So that's a little bit of the summary of what took place there in Thessalonica, and that's how this church got its beginning. Um, and so that's who we're talking about here. Now, if we flip back over to 1 Thessalonians and uh, chapter 1 there, uh, there's, a, there's three things that come out, especially in verse number 3, that Paul really commends this church, and they were, he really praised this church for having three very important characteristics. And, and I'm, I'm praying and, hope, and, and hoping that these characteristics will be evident here at Cornerstone Baptist Church that will include these in, in what we're known for. And these are the things that this church was known for, uh, not just in that little area, but as it went out into the surrounding areas, this is what their church was known for. In verse number three, he says, remembering without ceasing. He says, I just can't stop thinking about this, and I can't, I can't forget about all these things. And he says, first of all, he mentions their work of faith. So he praises them for their work of faith. Um, this was such a big deal to this church that they began. That this is what they became known for. In verse number seven, so that they were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith to Godward and spreading abroad. So we need not to speak anything. So number one, they were known for and they were praised for their work of faith. And when Timothy was sent to check on the church later on and to give a report to Paul, here's what the review was. And if you want to turn over to uh, chapter 3, verse number 1. Again, this is a little bit of like kind of a New Testament review. not New Testament, but some New Testament history, I suppose, we could talk about. Uh, we could put it that way, of what we're, we're covering tonight. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. And we sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you uh, concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we were appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. 
For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. Now when Timotheus came from, uh, from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. So when Paul, or when Timotheus, Timotheus, I'll call him Timothy, when he came back to report back to Paul, he said, man, they have some amazing faith over there at the church of Thessalonica. They are the example church. In other words, this church believed what God had said, and their faith propelled them to action. You know, faith that does not produce works is a faith that doesn't work. Let me say that again. Faith that does not produce works is a faith that doesn't work. James put it this way in his epistle. Faith without works is, who, has, who knows that one? It's dead. Faith without works is dead. For this, let's, I, can't not, I can't just leave it there. Let's go to James chapter 2. Because I want you to see for yourself the importance of uh, works with our faith. Now, we're not talking about working to have faith. We're, we're talking about working because of our faith. There's a big difference there. Uh, if, if we're working in order to gain our way to heaven, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about we're already saved, we already have our faith, but now that we have our faith, that should propel us to action, to do some things. Verse number 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, that if, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Well, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. See, works is really a proof and an evidence of my faith. Anybody can talk the talk, but who will walk the walk? Uh, faith without works is dead. Well, let's keep reading here. Verse 19, thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. He said, congratulations, you believe in God. Anyone believes in God. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 19, the devils also believe and tremble. So believing in God is wonderful, but that's not saving faith. So when you talk to somebody at work, you talk to a co or friend, a neighbor, and they say, oh, I believe in God. I always kind of say, well, that, that's good. I'm glad that you do, but the Bible says so do the devils. So I'm not asking if you believe in God. Uh, I think that's kind of a basic starting ground, but... Now that you believe in God, do you believe in His Son, Jesus Christ? Um, that's, that's where it really, uh, that's where our faith really begins. Okay, let's keep going here. Verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And then he goes and gives an Old Testament illustration in, in, uh, in, from the book of Genesis. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Do you remember that when, when, when God told Abraham to do that? 
Now, Abraham believed God. Well, here was some action to prove that he did. Because he said, Lord, I believe that you're going to re resurrect this, this boy or you're going to work this out to some degree. I'm not sure how, but you're going to do it. And he believed God. And, and it says here, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God because he was willing to put works with his faith. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And then he gives another Old Testament example of Rahab. Verse 25, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now Ephesians chapter 2, we, we quote this passage quite a bit when talking about salvation is not by works. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we're not saved by works. We know that. We know that we can't earn our way to heaven. There's nothing, there's, there's no amount of good works we can do in order to, we need a substitute, right, Brother Ed? We need a substitute. We don't need works. We need, uh, we need a substitute. And that's what Jesus Christ was for us. But then it goes on to say, so Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're pretty familiar with that. Well, the very next verse, verse 10, you know what that verse says? It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we know we're not saved by works, but we're saved to work. Does that make sense? This church understood that there at Thessalonica. They understood that because of their faith, it propelled them to action. Albert Barnes, in talking about this concept of uh, faith that works, he says this reference is probably uh, to acts of duty, holiness, and benevolence, which prove that they exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Works of faith are those to which faith prompts and which shows that there is faith in the heart. This does not mean, therefore, a work of their own producing faith, but a work which showed that they had faith. And there's a big difference there. Well, what kind of works did this example church do? Well, these works have been identified as being either direct missionary work. If we turn back over to 1 Thessalonians 1, and I think we'll kind of hang here the rest of the message. But verse number 8 says, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God's word is spread abroad. But the beginning of that verse says, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. So this church was sounding out the word of God. They were doing missionary work. They were getting the gospel out. They were getting the word of God and spreading it around. That's a great work to be doing because of our faith. You know, once we've Receive the Lord as our Savior. We've been cured of our sin. What a blessing that is. Well, let's not keep that cure to ourselves, because this cure can not only cure me, but it can cure every other person that I come in contact with. So I'm going to sound out the word of the Lord to others. Uh, also, another thing that these are works that this example church did was kindness toward the poor, the oppressed, and the afflicted, and all their acts which they showed that they love the souls of people. You know, what you truly believe is shown more through your actions than your words. It 
It's easy to say that you believe the Lord and that you uh, believe the Word of God, but, but your life shows that you do or don't, right? What you believe uh, determines how you behave. Uh, Ken Davis shares a story that illustrates this thought well, and it's a little bit longer of a story, so, so hang with me, but I think it'll make sense, and, and uh, picture yourself in this story. In college, he was asked to prepare a lesson to teach to his speech class. We were, we were graded, he said, on our creativity and ability to drive home a point in a memorable way. Well, the title of his talk was The Law of the Pendulum and Belief. Most of you know what a pendulum is. Well, after I told the class that I intended to reveal the law of true belief, I spent 20 minutes carefully teaching the physical principle that governs a swinging pendulum. I could see the look of puzzlement on their faces. What did the law of pendulum have to do with belief? Attention built as I proceeded. I, I kept reminding them of my objective along the way. That way they would know I was still headed in the right direction and continue to wonder how all of this would come together in this talk. Well, the law of the pendulum is this. A pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. Right. So if you were to release uh, a perfect pendulum here, it would swing, and then it wouldn't, it wouldn't quite hit that point of release again because of gravity and, and friction. Each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until it finally comes to a rest. This point of rest is called the state of equilibrium, where all forces acting on the pendulum are equal. Okay, Most of you are familiar with that. So he attached a three-foot string to a child's toy top and secured it to the top of a blackboard with the thumbtack. Then he pulled the top to one side and made a mark on the blackboard where I let it go. Each time it swung back, I made a new mark. Well, it took less than a minute for my little pendulum to complete its swinging and come to rest. When I finished the demonstration, the markings on the blackboard proved my thesis. I then asked how many people in the room believed the law of the pendulum was true. Well, all my classmates raised their hands, and so did the teacher. Thinking my presentation was over, he started to walk to the front of the room. But in reality, it had just begun. Hanging from the steel ceiling beams in the middle of the room was a large, crude, but functional pendulum featuring 250 pounds of metal weights tied to four strands of 500-pound test parachute cord. And so he invited the instructor to climb up on a table and sit in a chair with the back of his head against a cement wall. Then he slowly brought the 250 pounds of metal up to his nose. Holding the huge pendulum just a fraction of an inch from his face, I once again explained the law of the pendulum that he had plotted only moments before. And I said, if the law of the pendulum is true, then when I release this mass of metal, it will swing across the room and return, return just short of the release point. Your nose will not be in danger. After that final restatement of this law, I looked him in the eye and said, Sir, do you believe this law is true? There was a long pause. <laughs> Huge beads of sweat formed on his upper lip. And then he nodded weakly and whispered, yes. I could see looks of understanding begin to appear in the audience. The connection between the objective of the talk and this illustration was beginning to come together. I released the pendulum. 
It made a swishing sound as it arced across the room. At the far end of its swing, it paused momentarily and started back. He said, I never saw a man move so fast in my entire life. (laughs) He literally dived from the table. Deftly stepping around the still swinging pendulum, I asked the class, does he, the teacher, believe the law of the pendulum? And the students answered unanimously, no. He doesn't really believe that law. Now, the point here in our message tonight is this church there at Thessalonica, they were one of those weird churches that actually believed the word of God. So much so that they were willing to changed their lives, and it propelled them to live differently because of what God said, and they happened to believe it. How novel of a thought. You know, do you believe that God has called us to the Great Commission? If you do, should be evident in your behavior. Do you believe in the reality of hell? If you do, it should be evident in your behavior. Do you believe what God says about holiness and holy living? So it should be evident in the way we live. You know, it's easy to say, oh, I believe until we're having to make a decision to actually live that way. And this church was an example because they had work of faith. And I want to encourage Cornerstone Baptist Church to believe what God says. Enough to, wow, this is a crazy thought, but to live according to the Bible. Now, I know that every church in America is going to say the same thing. But where are the churches that are going to actually live according to the Bible? I'm praying as the Lord looks across this area, he would, he would stop and say, here's a church that's willing to know what I say and to believe it enough to actually live according to what I say. But that's only going to happen if each of us individually do that. Uh, we can't just expect everyone else in the building to do that. We have to take inventory in our own lives and say, Lord, am I really just a hearer only of what your word says, or am I a real doer of what your word says? This church, they were an example church because of their work of faith. They weren't working to earn their way to heaven, but because they were already on their way to heaven, it propelled them to action, and they were basing it on the word of God. I want to encourage us to have the same thing in our life as well and in our church. Secondly, uh, tonight as we go through this uh, really, this verse here, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, they were, they were praised because of their work of faith. Secondly, they were praised because of their labor of love. Because of their labor of love. When a person truly loves Christ, he is again prompted and driven to diligently labor for the Lord. You see, he looks at the love of God for him and giving his son to die for him and the love of Christ and being willing to give his life for him and He cannot help but be stirred to give back to Christ through works of love. 1 Corinthians 5.14, our our verse for the the year, our theme verse for the year here at Cornerstone, is 
2 Corinthians 5.15, that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. But the verse before that says this, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. That first part of the verse, For the love of Christ constraineth us. It, it's, it's, it compels us, it pushes us, it, it pulls us to uh, be able to live for Christ and to serve Him. In other words, love works. You know, I, I think I love my wife, but saying I love you 400 times a day, while that might be appreciative, if I never do things to show her that I love her, you know, it's all just talk, and talk is cheap. Now, she wants me to say it, but she wants me to prove it once in a while by showing that I'm willing to sacrifice for her. Same thing is true for the Lord. We can say, Lord, I love you. We can come to church on Sunday and say, how's it going? Oh, I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. We sang our first song tonight. I hope you do love Jesus, but it's going to be evident by what you and I do in our lives. So love works. If you recall, during the first Sunday morning service I preached here at Cornerstone, was called Amazing Love. And we saw many times in that series that love is much more than a feeling. Love is something we do. Love is an action word. It's a verb. And it's our greatest motivator, motivator for our labor. God desires that we would love Him enough to want to serve Him. Where we don't have to be finagled and arm twisted and, okay, I guess I'll serve you, Lord. Um, really, there, as uh, C.T. Studd said, if, if Jesus Christ be God, and He is, and He died for me and He did, then no sacrifice I can make for Him, uh, or nothing I can do for Him is, is, is a sacrifice. I like, I like that statement. I don't have it in my notes, so I don't have it exactly correct. But the idea is, when you look at what Jesus did for me, and He asked me to serve Him, it's no sacrifice at all. Years ago, there was a Ford billboard uh, advertising their, their cars. And uh, I saw it several years ago, and it had a photo of one of their cars on the billboard. And, and on it, it said, I want you to want me. And it was the idea of this, this car saying, hey, I want you to want me enough to buy me so that you can give Ford more money. <laughs> um, but as I saw that, I, I thought, you know, the Lord is saying that same thing to me. He's saying, Eric, I want you to want me. I want you to want me enough to serve you or to serve me. And when we do, when we do want the Lord that much, we'll be willing to labor for him. And when we do, Bible says in Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. There's that phrase again, which ye have showed toward his name and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. You know, everything that you do, whether it's seen or unseen, God takes special note of it. And uh, he doesn't ever forget. And one day he'll remind you. And everything that you do, whether, you know, I think about the butlers who served 36 years there on the mission field. And, and probably not a lot of fanfare. This is before Facebook Live that you could see everything that they were doing. Most of the world didn't know what was going on over there, but God did. 
he took special notice, and, and he kept a very meticulous record of everything that you did for the Lord over there in the Philippines. But everything we do here at the church, whether it's something that's visible or something that's not, the Lord takes notice and he promises to remember your labor of love. Uh, Bernard Newman tells once how he stayed in a Bulgarian peasant's house. All the time he was there, the daughter was stitching away at a dress. And he said to her, you know, do you ever get tired of that eternal sewing? I mean, all you do is sew, sew, sew. She said, oh, no, I never get tired of it. You see, this is my wedding dress. See, work done for love always has a glory and always keeps you going forward. So I want to encourage us to develop our love for the Lord and love for his people enough to be willing to labor for him like the church at Thessalonica. And you can measure what you would do for the Lord, uh, T.C. Horton Uh, said this, you can measure what you would do for the Lord by what you do. I'll say that again. You can measure what you would do for the Lord by what you do. You say, well, boy, I'd be willing to do this and I'd be willing to do that for the Lord. Okay, great. But what are you doing right now? What kind of labor of love are you involved in at the moment? Um, If we're just kind of sitting there saying, hey, I've done my time, or I've already served, and we'll let somebody else serve. And, okay, well, we're not really following the example here of the Thessalonians uh, because they were involved in labor of love, and it wasn't just a one- or two-person deal. It was the whole church was known for this. You probably have heard this statement. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. True love for Christ will always compel us to give him our time, our talent, and treasure. And this is what the example church at Thessalonica was known for. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul highlights this and says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. And then number three tonight, and we'll wrap it up with this thought. Of course, here in verse three, patience of hope. They were praised for their patience of hope. Also in verse number 6, it talks about the affliction that they were dealing with. In verse number 6, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. So this wasn't a church you say, well, they must have been uh, serving and just everything was going just wonderful and hunky-dory and, you know, how's everything going? And they would always say, finer than a frog's hair. Is that your saying, Brother Ed? Okay, good. Yeah, you reminded me of that. I, 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 there was a man in our church in, in California that used to say that all. He's in heaven now. But uh, remember Brother Durfee? He used to say that all the time when you asked him how he was. But, so this church wasn't like everything was just always perfect. There was some persecution and affliction that this church was dealing with, and, and yet they, they had patience of hope. This church was known for their patience. Verse number three, or chapter three, verse three. Here the word affliction shows up again, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. In verse number four, for verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation. So tribulation here is something they were experiencing. And then in verse number 
Uh, well, I guess that's, that's, that's all I have there. But um, So these verses indicate there that this church was going through tribulation and persecution and affliction. It was a difficult thing, but they were known for their patience. And someone wrote this little quick poem, uh, Patience is a Virtue. Possess it if you can, found seldom in a woman, never in a man. So I don't know how true that is, but uh, um, I know that my wife is way more patient than I am, and I'm thankful that God gave me her to uh, help me with that. But the churches of Ephesus and Thyatira were also known for their patience, um, which we'll get to a little more in detail through this series, Revelation chapter 2 talks about that to, of the church of Ephesus. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. And then in his letter to the church at Thyatira, Jesus says to them, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. So evidently patience is something that is important to God in a church. You know, if we were to talk about characteristics of a church, you know, that God really loves and, and really wants in a church, I don't know that most of us would, would include patience in the top ten, would we? I don't know that I would have. But here as he talks to the church at Ephesus, as he talks to the church at Thyatira, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there in Thessalonica, um, patience is something that God really values. So God wants us to be patient in times of difficulty. You and I will experience great persecution and hardship as we live godly and li- godly lives in our culture. Uh, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Well, how will we endure such hardship and affliction? Notice, and, and we'll, we're almost done, folks, so I appreciate your attention and hanging with me tonight. Um, notice where their hope was in. Their hope was in verse 3. It says, and patience of hope in our economy, in who's in the White House, in whether the wall gets built or not. (laughs) Uh, That's not who their hope was in. Their hope was in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we have our hope in the right place, it helps us to be patient. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. You see, when we place our hope in Him, then we can, that helps us to be able to endure the, the difficulties we face in our lives. But when we get our eyes off of Him, like Peter, when he was walking on the water and he saw those waves and he got his eyes off the Lord, he got his eyes on the waves and the difficulty and the hardship and the affliction, he began to sink. As long as his eyes were on the Lord and his hope was in Christ, he was able to walk on that water. Psalm 31 and verse 24, Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. Psalm 38 verse 15, For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou wilt hear, O Lord my God. Titus 2.13, This is the blessed hope here, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the Republican Party taking over both. In, no. <laughs> the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope. 
Because of that, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That gives us patience when our hope is in Him. Psalm 42, verse 5 and 11 and in the next chapter, verse 40, chapter 43, verse 5, I'd like to take you over there, but for sake of time, I'll just kind of read it here. Uh, the very similar verse in three different verses, two in one chapter and one in the next, says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. We're encouraged in those three verses there in a very short period of time. To hope thou in God. Psalm 146 verse 5. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help. Whose hope is in the Lord is God. Remember we went through that series called Blessed. Learning how we can be happy. Uh, true happiness comes from uh, finding out what God has to say. And, and, and God's way. Well here's a verse that says. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help. Whose hope is in the Lord is God. At the 2002 Winter Olympics, Apollo Ono, you know who I'm talking about, um, an American uh, hoped to win his second gold medal in the men's 5,000-meter short track speed skating relay. During one of the turns, another American skater fell. His fall and recovery only took a few seconds, but it essentially put the American team out of the race. After that, the American team began to skate slower and slower, eventually allowing themselves to be lapped by the gold medal Canadians. Why did they slow down? See, the hope of winning was gone. Is your hope of winning gone? Then I would encourage you to look again at God's word and be encouraged. It's, it's very clear if you read the end of the story. We win. We're on the winning side. We who have put our trust in Christ will be with Him in glory while the rest of the world goes through a very difficult tribulation period. Can I encourage us uh, with what the writer of Hebrews said in, in chapter 12, verse 1? He said, let us run with patience. The race that is set before us. And remember, where are we to be looking as we run this race? Looking at our neighbors to make sure that we're winning. To make sure that they're staying in their lane and not coming over into ours. Where are we to be looking with this patience as we run this race? We, most of us, know the rest of the verse. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Keep your eyes on Him. Stop comparing yourselves one with another. Let's run with patience the rate that is set before us. So as we conclude this message tonight, which all of God's people said amen, let me ask this question. How are we doing once again? The idea isn't just to say, well, that's nice that the church of Thessalonica had these qualities. Isn't that wonderful? No, the idea is, Lord, as a church, we want to look at what you praise in your word, and we want to try to implement these priorities into our church. And so how are we doing? Are we an example church? Is Cornerstone Baptist Church an example church? Not that we want to be who's who among independent Baptist churches. 
That's not the goal. But God wants to use us, and uh, God wants us to have these attributes in our, in our church. We're only going to be an example church if we have a work of faith. If we believe God's word enough to propel us to action. Do we have labor of love and patience of hope? So, do we have a faith that works? Do we have a love for God that labors? And do we have patience because we hope in God? Better yet, let me ask this question. Do you have a faith that works? Do you have a love for God that labors? Do you have a patience because you hope in God? Do you? Do I? That's really where it comes down 